we don't know how long we're going to have to wait for the price of uranium to respond. And so in the meantime, we would like to buy something at a discount to its its asset value that also pays us to wait. And that that opportunity is Kazatom Prom. And th there isn't another opportunity like it um, at the moment in the uranium space. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. The company is focused on its Candelaria Mine project in Nevada, where there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver. The Candelaria Mine historically was the highest grade silver producer in Nevada, generating over 68 million ounces of silver at an amazing average production rate of over 1,250 grams per ton. The project has tremendous expansion potential as past drilling has outlined deeper, high-grade silver targets for future drill programs. Silver One is highly leveraged to the price of silver and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. Greetings and welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am Bill Powers and today we're going to be engaging a topic that we haven't uh, engaged that much in the past few months, that being uranium. Uh, uranium in the past few years has reached a low of $18. It, right now it's a little above $25 per pound, but that's far below what the average miner worldwide needs to really be profitable producing and it, it's far below less than half of what we need to see $60 a pound to really incentivize a lot of exploration to bring more production online. So I've asked Will Thompson, he is the managing partner of Massive Capital to come give us his thoughts on the uranium market. With that being said, Will, welcome back to the show. And what are your thoughts about the investment opportunities available in the uranium sector right now? Uh, hey, Bill, uh, thanks for having me back and happy to talk about uranium. Uh, I just got back from a trip to Kazakhstan to visit with the uh, Kaz Prom management team. So I've been spending a lot of time on uranium lately. I think uh, overall, the last year, uh, it started to look like we were seeing a turn in the, the cycle. Um, this year, uh, it looks like we've sort of regressed a little bit. Uh, the macro or sort of industry setup for uranium remains quite positive. Uh, there's a widening sort of supply and demand gap. Um, there is extremely long lead times for new mine development. Uh, over the last 10 years, producers have cut CapEx by about two thirds. Um, and as you sort of suggested, the current prices uh, remain well sort of below what is needed to incentivize new production. Um, so from an industry setup perspective, it's about as good as it gets, I think, for a, a commodity. Um, for investors, though, I would say the landscape is a little more problematic. Um, if you look out sort of in the uranium space, you sort of have these two big guys, Cameco, uh, who most of your listeners are probably familiar with, the Canadian producer, one of the probably the second largest producer in the world. Um, and then you also have Kazatomprom, uh, which is the primarily Kazakhstani state owned uranium producer that listed in London last year. Um, after that, you have a few small, what I would consider undersized producers who uh, will certainly do well if the price of uranium really rallies, uh, but may or may not make it uh, until you know the price rallies. Uh, and then you have a lot of juniors with deposits. Um, a lot of the deposits are, are quite interesting. 
Um, there are several management teams that are are quite strong, uh, but you know if you look at the supply and demand, uh, it really doesn't look like we need sort of new capacity to come online uh, until 2025 or perhaps after that. And so from an investor's perspective, I, I think uh, you have some speculative opportunities in the junior space where if you want to allocate a little bit of money to uh, a potentially you know, very high reward uh, opportunity that may also be a zero, um, there are a couple of names. Uh, but in terms of actual investable companies, uh, it's at least our opinion that you know, you're really your only choice is Kaz Adamprom. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that that I, I'm sort of happy to go into. Yes, and I should point out that Massive Capital wrote a investment review in January of this year on uh, Kazataprom, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes below so you can access that. Uh, you referenced, Will, uh, one of the quotes in that report where you said uh, Kazataprom is the first investable uranium miner to hit the market in a decade. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so... So, um, you know, when you, you look at opportunities, I think uh, you can sort of look at uh, how much downside there is, how much upside there is, and sort of the asymmetry between the two. Uh, and so we tend to think of there as being speculative opportunities. Um, and this is a pre- particularly uh, sort of relevant to the mining space. Um, but we tend to look at there being speculative opportunities, uh, which are um, you know, sort of high reward opportunities, but significant downside opportunity as well. So there's the potential for a complete loss. Um, and then there are sort of investable opportunities. Uh, and we look at investable opportunities as maybe not having the same upside as that speculative opportunity, but having sort of a much, much uh, less downside. Um, you know, ideally, uh, frankly, from a valuation perspective, little or no downside. Um, whether that, you know, sort of works out in the market and, you know, after sentiment is taken into account with the equity prices, that's a different story. But, um, you know, asset value that is significantly uh, asset value and, and future cash flow generating ability that is significantly uh, in advance of where the company is currently trading. And so we've been following the uranium space for some time. And what we found is that, again, those juniors, there are some interesting ones. But we don't know how long we're going to have to wait. And so that is, uh, you know, there's a a time issue there. Um, If we've got to wait until after, say, 2025 uh, to see a return, um, that that could be quite a long wait. And that timeline might take a highly asymmetric uh, return and convert it into a sort of a a modest return on a compounded annual sort of basis. and then, you know, you have someone like Cameco, which is what I would consider to be the sort of traditional pick in the space. Uh, but uh, they have expensive production. Um, they've got great minds, don't get me wrong, but their production is uh, second quartile. Um, they have no sort of first quartile mines other than uh, the uranium mine that they have a joint venture on with Kaz Adamprom. Um Everything else is second quartile or above, uh, and they have shut down MacArthur River, uh, and the timeline and cost to get that back up and running is significant, um, and the incentive price is probably more like 40 to $50 uh, 
uh, per ton. So, you know, a good $10 above the long-term price and $15 above the current spot price. So overall, it, it looks like a, you know, more of a bet, uh, much like the juniors, more of a bet on just uh, a rise in the price of uranium because it's got very little growth potential um, and uh, very little sort of ability to generate uh, real free cash flow at the moment, other than through this sort of unique uh, moment in time they've got right now where they can buy in the spot market and sell on their long-term contracts. Um, Kazadamprom, on the other hand, has you know a very solid balance sheet. They're the largest producer globally with about, at this point, about 23, 25% of primary production. Uh, they have the largest reserves in the world um, that are all mineable via uh, ISR, which is a very sort of straightforward process that is quite sort of simple and easy to execute and very scalable. Uh, and they have a strong dividend policy. And I think that last one is quite important um, because, again, uh, we don't know how long we're going to have to wait for the price of uranium to respond. And so in the meantime, we would like to buy something at a discount to its, its asset value that also pays us to wait. And that uh, that opportunity is Kazadam Prom. And th- there isn't another opportunity like it um, at the moment in the uranium space. And, uh, you know, it trades on the London Stock Exchange, which is a good, you know, good exchange. They've got uh, strong governance that is continuously improving. Um, and so all around, it's it's a very interesting opportunity for someone who's interested in uranium uh, but doesn't want to risk, you know, a zero. Um, and is willing to accept the fact that perhaps it doesn't pop the same way a junior might. And so maybe they lose a little upside, but on a risk-adjusted return basis, we would view it probably as a, as a better play. There are investment managers and influential commentators such as Marin Katusa that says, avoid AK-47 nations, which he refers to them as, uh, at all costs, especially when it comes to uranium. What's your perspective on the concerns people have about Russia, Russia's con- control over potential control and influence over Kazataprom and how that might affect your investment? You know, look, Marin uh, Katusa is a, a smart guy and a, a very successful investor, obviously. Um, I would argue that his uh, understanding of political risk uh, seems to be somewhat limited based on what I've heard. Um, Kazakhstan, at least from a, a political risk and a country risk, pers- or I guess to back up, I would say that when you start thinking about political and country risk, um, the most important thing for everyone to recognize is that uh, the way we tend to see it presented is is a very sort of inaccurate picture. And so generally speaking, you want if you start talking about it, someone's going to trot out a country risk index. This country is X, is, is sort of X on the list of 160 countries or, or something like that. Um, you know, it is very risky according to an IHS index of political risk. Uh, this is a very uh, unproductive way to look at political risk. Um, political risk is about individual assets, it's about individual companies, and it's about how those individual companies engage with the government and the local population. So it is highly idiosyncratic to the company, the asset, and the people. Um, so to talk about sort of AK-47 countries uh, doesn't really capture uh, what's going on 
when we think about political risk. Um, there are companies who figure out ways to operate very successfully in difficult countries, and there are companies that do not. And so that means sort of by definition, political risk is not a country issue. It is a company-specific issue. In regards to Kazakhstan and Kazatomprom, what I would say is, look, 80% of the company uh, is still owned by the State Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, they have several joint ventures with Russian uh, companies, or, or pr primarily uh, Uranium One, uh, which is owned by Ra uh, the Russian state uranium company whose name is escaping me at the moment. They also have several joint ventures with Cameco, uh, Orana, which is the French uh, sort of nuclear authority, um, and uh, the Chinese. Um, they have several joint ventures with the Chinese. Uh, so Kazakhstan sits there sort of right in the middle uh, of everyone, uh, has relationships with everyone, um, and is quite deliberate um, at least the language coming out of the government is quite deliberate um, in emphasizing that they want a productive working relationship with, at the very least, both China and Russia, but ideally China, Russia and the United States. And so the level of influence that Russia has, I think, has been exaggerated, uh, probably solely because of the history of the country and the fact that most people don't do a lot of work to understand what's been going on there in the recent sort of in the last decade, I'd say. Um, and if you do some work, what you find is that, in fact, um, they've had a growing relationship with the United States and they've really had a significantly growing relationship with China. Now, does that mean they may fall under this way of China as opposed to Russia? And is that hypothetically as worry worrisome as falling under this way of Russia? Uh, that's certainly a possibility. Um, but I would say that they have made it very clear that they would like to uh, bring several more companies uh, to several more uh, government owned entities, um, specifically in the oil and natural gas sector, the telecommunications sector and the railroad sector uh, to the public market uh, on Western exchanges. Um, and with that in mind, you know, they need to sort of toe, uh, sort of toe some lines and balance all these powers. And I think they, they appeared thus far to be doing it pretty well. Um, Kaz Adamprom was the first, uh, company state owned entity, which they were going to IPO. Um, thus far the IPO has been, uh, pretty successful. The share price has sort of just bounced around a little bit. Um, but it's gone smoothly uh, their sort of production of documents for, for, uh, investors has been comprehensive and smooth. Um, and they continue to, uh, in all my, our conversations with them, uh, continue to emphasize, um, the work that they're doing to, uh, bring up governance standards, um, alleviate ESG concerns, uh, and sort of work on some of these issues that are uh, important uh, to transparency and Western investors. Um, so I, I don't think you can view Kazakhstan in the same way as you might view uh, a country that has more security risks uh, or a country that lacks the, the governance and development uh, that Kazakhstan has.
We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Orn Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Orin's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Orin has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Orin trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. Well, I appreciate that articulation. Uh, you and I are both Americans, and one thing I think I should point out to the listeners is that you've served as a strategic and economic advisor to NATO in Afghanistan. And how did that experience help prepare you for that analysis that you just offered us? That's that's an interesting question. Um, I think that my experience in Afghanistan made it quite clear to me that. Uh, a lot of the problems we think of as systemic and country issues uh, are, in fact, often regional and people issues. Um, you know, every time we went out to talk with someone or try to deal with an issue in Afghanistan, and I dealt with a lot of corruption issues, um, and I dealt with uh, issues related to the elections, uh, it was always about convincing some group of people who did not in any way represent the country overall, uh, that this was in their best interests. And so I think that the idea of understanding who a company's stakeholders are, uh, and how the company is interacting with those stakeholders is going to be much more telling about the political risk that you as an equity investor are exposed to than any general sort of observations or overview of the economy of the country, the security situation in the country overall, uh, and the sort of political situation. How does our country's Section 232 decision regarding potential quotas for U.S. Uh, uranium miners and how the uranium as a commodity is viewed for natural uh, national security. How would that potentially affect the profitability of Kazataprom? So, so we were a little undecided about that uh, internally. Um, Section two thirty two had the potential in our mind to create this sort of interesting bifurcated market. Uh, the analogy we thought of was um, sort of the United States in regards to oil uh, before uh, we were allowed to export crude. And so you had that spread that existed on a sort of continuous basis and still does, of course, uh, between Brent and WTI. Uh, we viewed there as being a likely bifurcation in the market where domestic uh, consumers um, – for the you know roughly sort of ninety nuclear reactors that we have here in the United States, uh, would have to buy say twenty five percent of the uranium that they were going to use uh, at a higher price, uh, and in the United States that price would probably be more like forty or fifty dollars uh, a pound, just given the sort of cost of production, um, and that the offshore markets uh, would probably trail 
uh, that price, um, but we weren't really sure. In regards to Kaz Prom in particular, uh, the United States represents a very small market uh, for Kaz Prom. They are sort of, if you will, the primary producer for much of the rest of the world, and in particular China uh, and various other sort of secondary nuclear markets, although France is, is a pretty big one also. Um, so their total exposure to the United States, I think it, it, if I remember correctly, was about 5% of sales. So uh, it didn't look likely to impact their operating results terribly, except in as much as perhaps uh, they missed out on an opportunity because they just don't have U.S. assets. Um, so w- we didn't view it as a as a particular uh, as, as a great negative uh, to to Kaz Prom. Now I will say that much of the U.S. Uh, nuclear fleet is supplied with uranium um, from uh, foreign countries. Uh, Kaz Prom probably has more significant exposure to the United States than that three to five percent or so of revenue that comes directly from the United States suggests. But because the nuclear supply chain is so long and frankly quite complex, uh, it's probably obscured a little bit. Um, but they still they still have China. Uh, they still have relationships with Russia, with France. Um, they are you know going to supply, many of the new reactors that are being built in uh, various emerging or developing countries throughout the world. Uh, So in the grand scheme of things, we didn't really think the impact would be all that significant. Uh, That being said, if the quotas had been, if Section 232 had gone through and quotas had been something like, well, producers need to to buy 100% of uranium from U.S. producers, I think there you would see more of an impact. But as long as that uh, whatever the, as long as whatever the result of the sort of current uh, discussions are in the government are are not something along those lines, we see the impact as relatively minor. After your recent meeting with Kazataprom management, do you feel more confident in your investment? And what were some of your key takeaways? You know, it's always good to go out and see these mines and to meet with management teams. Uh, it certainly increases our in this. I mean, it doesn't always increase conviction. In this particular case, it did increase our conviction, and I think a lot of that has to do with just seeing the process, seeing how deliberate, thoughtful they are about it, seeing how, frankly, simple uh, the ISR mining process is, and how scalable it is for them, uh, and the effort they are putting into being uh, transparent uh, with their operations and um, efficient with their operations. Uh, They, as a state-owned entity, um, one is always worried about, uh, you know, spending that is is unnecessary uh, or supports a political agenda. Uh, And I would say that Kaz Adam Prom probably at at some point in its history certainly fell uh, under the sway of some of that type of activity. Uh, But as they prepared for the IPO, uh, they made very deliberate sort of decisions about implementing uh, lean production methods um, and sort of U.S. standards or international standards of governance. Um, and 
they are slowly implementing them and they are doing what they said they were going to do. Um, and I, I think from a, a mining perspective, uh, the best you can expect from a management team is, is for them to do what they say they're going to do. And when a problem does occur, they approach it and deal with it as sort of quickly and deliberately as possible. And, and thus far, uh, management team has done what they said they were going to do, and they haven't had any implementation problems. So uh, from our perspective, uh, it's all sort of moving in the right direction. Um, seeing the country uh, of uh, Kazakhstan uh, was great. Um, it's, I think a lot of people would be very surprised if they went there. Um, if for no other reason than you hear Kazakhstan and you probably think uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan because of the, the sort of root word. Uh, and so you, there's probably some assumptions about what it, what it looks like, what the nation is like. Uh, and I would suggest that most of those assumptions are probably just plain wrong. Um, you know, I, I was in, uh, Shmikent, which is, uh, the third largest city, uh, in Kazakhstan at the end of my trip. This is a city of about a million people. Um, you know, there are cafes and people are drinking coffee and, and chatting and people are on their cell phones and everyone's got a cell phone and uh, everyone's got, you know, there's uh, Apple is advertising. There are iPhones everywhere. Um, so, you know, everyone's driving cars and taxis. There's Uber, you know, every every luxury, frankly, that uh, I enjoy in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, I was also able to. Uh, enjoy in Shmikent, the third largest city in Kazakhstan. Um, so I, I suspect, you know, now if you go outside some of the big cities, it is obviously, you know, there is, uh, there is poverty and things of that nature. Um, uh, but it is fast growing. The population is growing. Uh, it is peaceful. And although I wouldn't consider it a democracy because it's not, um, it is a, soft autocracy that uh, the people uh, appear at the moment to it, at the very least tolerate um, and in some regards uh, respect a great deal. Well, in our last conversation, we had talked about how your fund is invested in Cobalt 27 and you were not happy with the proposed takeover by Paula Investments. Since that conversation, the terms of the deal were changed and just a few days ago, uh, last Friday, Cobalt 27 announced that they had passed the updated terms. Uh, what's your perspective here? What does your fund plan to do with your current investment in Cobalt 27? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, look, the, the deal passed. They got the votes. Uh, I don't know where they got them. They got them. Um, so there, there's very little we can do at this point. We're still not thrilled uh, with the offer. Um I think that we've done some sort of back of the envelope math. And if you look at uh, sort of what the price of nickel and the price of cobalt has done since their initial offer, um, and you look at their uh, stockpile of physical cobalt and sort of the value of the Vosi Bay cobalt stream, uh, the, the new offer was just an increase uh, in the cash portion that is sort of equivalent to or roughly equivalent to countering what has happened in the price of cobalt um, since the offer. So uh, it, it's a 3% improvement overall uh, and an improvement in the cash position. It still leaves shareholders at the end with this nickel 28 stub, which you know w w we think it's worth something. 
um, but the time it'll take for it to be worth something is, is probably quite long. Um, and in order for it to be anything but uh, a passive portfolio of streams that we are waiting uh, for, uh, will require them to raise a significant amount of capital, probably uh, diluting the existing shareholder base, you know, pretty significantly. So, uh, look, they improved the cash offer, which is great um, for my fund. Uh, it's good because we were in at, at less than four dollars a share, but that's not the case for everyone. Um, so, you know, we're not thrilled with the offer, but we've accepted the situation. We're going to look to sell the nickel twenty-eight stub. I would imagine at whatever we can get sort of best price. Uh, now what that best price is on the first day of trading, you know, that's going to be an open question. The implied value, uh, in the offer is, I believe it's about a buck 92 now at this point. Um, but of course in the market, you know, it's more like 55 cents. Um, so that, that's a pretty wide spread. And I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know where it's open this morning. I'm not in front of my computer at the moment, but, um, you know, maybe it's rallied a little bit, but either way, it's well below the implied offer price. And, and so we don't imagine anyone's going to actually get this, you know, $5.75 offer, um, or, uh, sorry, $5.92 offer, I guess, overall. Uh, but you know, they got the votes. So, uh, we'll take our $4, we'll take the stub and sell it and see what we can get. Um, we'll keep an eye on the stub. I, I think the stub, uh, is worth keeping an eye on. Um, but f frankly, in a, s a somewhat similar way to the uranium juniors, um, it could be a really long wait before it, it becomes anything that, that the streams that they've got in there, uh, the nickel streams primarily, um, some of them could be, could be quite big. Uh, they do have a, a stream on Royal Nickel Corp uh, RNC's Dumont project that could become a very big deposit. Um, but you know, RNC is now focused on their gold project in in uh, Australia, so you know they've taken the eye off off that ball, if you will. So so it could be a very long time. But the situation is what it is. We have to take what the market gives us. Will, thank you for your insights. If you want to learn more about Will's fund, go to Massive Cap. That's M-A-S-S-I, F as in Frank, C-A-P as in Paul, dot com. Will, as always, I appreciate your insights. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to do so, Bill. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold-equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion, with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com.
Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.